I'm sure you don't have the problem I do of going to the bank in Sydney. For me to go to the bank, I've got to go to a regional centre, which is called Burwood. The bank is located in the large Westfield shopping mall. I've got to queue up. I've got to get my parking space in Westfield. I've got a limited time, which is free, and then I, it starts to charge me. I get to my bank. I queue up. Um, I queue up under a sign that says, you are, not a, you are not a number, you are a person. But I'm made to feel at every point like I am a number. I take my number out of the machine and wait till the sign says that my number is called. I get to the teller, who is a real person, I think, and the teller says, what is your PIN number? Please put it into the machine. And it's an, uh, it's an unsatisfying, a frustrating experience. The other day, I'm sitting at my favourite coffee shop which is at the edge of Burwood, so there's no parking problems, and they're opening a new business across the road. I look and I see that they're writing a sign. Bank, a bank. I could come here and open an account here and I wouldn't have to get through all the queues and I wouldn't have to get into a parking area and uh, it'd be wonderful. So I go over, I go in, and the teller, whose name is Wendy, said, how do you do, sir? May I help you? I said, yes, how do you do? My name's David Cook. I'd like to open an account. She said, oh, Mr Cook, that's wonderful. And immediately the bank manager's office door opens and Evan comes out. Evan is her husband. This is my husband, Evan. Oh, welcome, Mr Cook. It's lovely to have you on board. Thank you very much. I was made to feel like a person, not a number. A couple of months later, or a month later, I receive a cheque from the United Kingdom made out in pounds sterling. So I go into the bank and I say to Wendy, I don't know if I can put this into my account, at which point Evan, the manager, comes out and says, I don't know whether you can, Mr Cook, but I'll get back to you within the hour. I go back to the college, four or five kilometres away, and within the hour, Evan rings up and he says, Mr Cook, yes, you can put that cheque into your account, but you need to fill out a form. May I bring the form down to you? Now, mate, have you had service like that from your bank? All of a sudden, I really did feel like a member of the family. Imagine going to a bank where you actually feel like a member of the family. Acts. 3,000 people converted on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 4. The church has grown to 5,000 men, let alone women and children. Do you feel lost in those numbers, those statistics? Oh, a great mass of people coming to the Lord Jesus. But do I matter? Does one person matter before God? And it's as though at chapter 8, Luke slows the narrative right down. He says, I've told you about the mass movement. I've told you about the effect of the gospel. Now let me tell you about three people. And we're going to now, in this session, just look at chapter 8 through to chapter 10, and we're going to let Luke tell us the story of three men. Do I matter to God or am I lost in the huge movement back to Jesus? Yes, you do. God's purpose is to glorify himself by saving a people, every person for himself. He is the sovereign and he is the effective evangelist. Now, chapter 8. Have a look there at verse 12 and we see that Philip who is one of the men who was elected a deacon, is in Samaria. And what's he doing there? He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Verse 26. He is told by an angel of the Lord, Philip, go to the south road, 
the road that leads to Gaza. On the same road, at the same time, is the treasurer of Ethiopia. He has been all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem in order to worship. But because he has the garb of a high official of Ethiopia, and to be a high official of Ethiopia mean, meant that you worked in close contact with the queen of the Ethiopians, and if you are going to, as a male, work in close contact with the queen of the Ethiopians, well, the cost of that was you had to be eunuched because you had to be safe in the presence of the Queen of the Ethiopians. So if you were a high official, uh, with the garb of a high official, in Jerusalem it would have, you would have been known that you were a eunuch. And the law of God is quite clear that in the assembly of God's people there is to be no eunuchs. And so he's come all this way and yet he is disappointed. And so he invests in a scroll of Isaiah. Now this is not something you just go to a bookshop and pick one up. A scroll takes a long time. It's like a treasure. And he's made a very real investment in this scroll of Isaiah. This man is a disappointed outcast all the way to Jerusalem, only to be disappointed, to be kept on the fringe of the assembly of God's people. But he is not outside the purposes of God. Philip, verse 29, is told, Go and stay near that chariot. And as he's running by the charity, here's the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he says, do you, well, he probably says, do, 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 do you understand what you're reading? How can I? The man says, and he invites him in. And here is an encounter, friends. He happens to be reading Isaiah 53. Imagine, right road, the road leading south, right time, Philip is there, the chariot of the treasure of Ethiopia, Right person, Philip, and right passage, Isaiah 53. I mean, there is no more direct reference in the Old Testament than you. He could have been reading, I said one time, he could have been reading Leviticus 3. And someone came up to him and said, what do you got against Leviticus 3? I've got nothing against Leviticus 3. But this is a very direct reference, isn't it? Isaiah 53 to the Lord Jesus. Verse 34. The man says to Philip, tell me. He says, who is Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? Verse 35, beginning with those very words of scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. What did Philip say? Look at verse 32. It was Jesus who was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. It was Jesus who did not open his mouth. In the humiliation of Jesus, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of the descendants of Jesus? for his life was taken from the earth. I want you to know that you've got a physical disability, but all of us have got a spiritual disability and it is called sin. Just roll this scroll back just a couple of uh, inches and you'll see that this Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The punishment that was due to us was laid on him. What he did, the Lord Jesus, Isaiah telling us 700 years before, he did for you and me. And we need to repent and trust in him. And so the man, no doubt, he said, a repentance and the mark of that is baptism. And he says, well, here is his water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? God is the sovereign evangelist. God is bringing glory to himself. God is saving people through his spirit-empowered messengers. And God sets up 
and encounter laid down in eternity on the right road, the south road leading to Gaza, the right time, the chariots going past, the right text, Isaiah 53, and the spirit-empowered messenger, the directed evangelist. And Philip is going to do on the Gaza road what he was doing back in Samaria. I don't know that number of students, I'd say, where are you going after college? They say, I'm going overseas as an evangelist and a missionary. Are you doing evangelism here? Because if you're not doing it here in your own culture and in your heart language, nothing magic is going to happen on the plane. Philip was doing it in Samaria and God says, just go to the South Road and do it there. And Philip was fit enough to stay by the chariot. Now, that's the best argument I've got for keeping fit and, and going to the gym. But he was fit enough and he was obedient. I don't know whether he was ambitious for a ministry on the road leading south. But he knew enough biblical theology to be able to go from Isaiah 53 to know that Isaiah is not talking about himself, but Isaiah is talking about the Lord Jesus. And he goes from Isaiah to the Lord Jesus. And he is ever ready. Go to the chariot and stay near it. Do you understand what you're reading? My father was a mocker of the Christian faith. My father at the age of 48 goes and works with a business associate. No one wanted to work with him. But the boss called my dad in and said, you're working with Ernie, cookie. But careful, because no one else wants to work with him because he's a Bible basher. And Ernie was a Gideon. And it wasn't long before Ernie was sharing the gospel with this bloke sitting next to him in the car. And it was about 12 months later that Ernie one day said to my father, you know, Bruce, he said, it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. And that was it. Ernie had done lots of other work before that. But my dad came home and told me that he'd become a Christian at the age of 48. I thought he was joking. I'd only heard him mock the Christian faith up to that point. My mother was converted one week later. Why? Because Ernie didn't just sit there, but he shared the gospel. He took the opportunity. I saw Ernie when he was 92 years of age. I was speaking at a Baptist men's breakfast and Ernie was there. And I said, Mr Crocker, I said, you always had an evangelistic tract in your back pocket. He said, and I still do, David. And he pulled the tract out and he said, there'll be a lot of people in heaven because of this tract. And I said, and probably because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus as well, they'll be in heaven. <laughs> but see, I praise God for a bloke like that. He was a Philip. Bruce, what direction are you going in life? It's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. Just before I left the college, we had a guy called Mike, one of our graduates, who was in a Muslim-majority country. And he came back and he said, I'll give you the best opening line for the, evangel for the evangelization of Muslims. Here it is. G'day, my name's Mike. What's yours? See, we're fearful. Open up a conversation. Do you understand what you're reading? I'm not saying when you go to the barber or the dentist or the hairdressers, there's going to be somebody sitting there reading Isaiah 53 and wondering what it's about. But you'll never know if you don't open up the conversation. And we are naturally shy people. We are. I was sitting recently in a food mall in Sydney. There was about that much space between my table and the lady sitting diagonally opposite me. My friend had just got up to go over and get coffee and before he came back with our coffee, I'm sitting here, she's sitting there. What do you do in our culture? Well, you don't have eye contact and you don't speak. I just simply said to her, 
What sort of a day are you having with a smile? She said, I have never been so nervous in all my life. This afternoon I'm going for some medical results. You see, do you think that was an opportunity? You would never have known it unless someone had taken the initiative. Do you understand what you're reading? You see, for this Ethiopian, talk to him. He said, well, this is no chance encounter. Uh, this bloke comes along just at that moment that I'm reading Isaiah 53 and he told me about Jesus and I repented and I was baptised and I went on my way rejoicing. Oh, there's much more to it than that. There were some widows grumbling in chapter 6. An election took place and seven deacons were elected. One of those deacons was martyred and the other deacons were spread out with the gospel and one of them went to Samaria and as he's doing gospel work in Samaria, an angel of the Lord said, you go to the road, it's all planned. The great evangelist sets up an evangelistic encounter, set down in eternity but in time and space on the south road leading to Gaza. At the Heidelberg Catechism, question 57 says this, it is by faith that we enjoy Christ and all his blessings to us. Where then does this faith come from? Answer, the Holy Spirit produces it in our hearts through the preaching of the Holy Gospel. Spirit-empowered messenger, that's us, saved by the grace of God to his glory. Uh, last year I was in the United Kingdom and I heard an interview with the UK Teacher of the Year. He's a science teacher. What's the secret of being a great teacher, the interviewer said. Well, he said, I'm a science teacher. And I think most children come into the laboratory and they're so overwhelmed by the formula and by the equipment that they think you've got to be especially brilliant to be interested in science. My role is to show them that science is for the average person, and it is. Dear friends, evangelism, you might not all have the same gifts. You might not all have the same opportunities, but you've got the same heart. And your concern will be that people will come to the glory of God to be part of his family. And you will not sit in your Australian shyness and let an opportunity go past. Here I am in Coles, here I am in Woolworths or wherever I am, I'm standing waiting my turn. It's never harmful to turn around and say, G'day, what sort of a day are you having? I've never heard anyone say, mind your own business or complain about it. A smiling face... And a simple question, the evangelistic fervour of our God, setting up an intersection laid down in eternity, the readiness of Philip to go, the debtor to grace of the Ethiopian. And look at chapter 9, let's go over the page. Here's another man. He's not a disappointed outsider, but he's an insider. There's nothing outcast about him. He's a fervent persecutor of the new way. He's a Pharisee. And he's got access to the high priest. He's got letters to arrest those who belong to the way who are worshipping in the synagogues at Damascus. He's very close, this man, to the top of the tree. And what is about to happen to this man is so vital that Luke repeats it three times. He says, someone might say, oh, do you think Luke was a family man? I know Luke was a family man. I know that he had children because whenever he says anything important, he says it three times. And this is, this is important. He tells us chapter 9, he repeats it in chapter 22, and he repeats it again in chapter 26. And the impact of this man's conversion on the history of the church is incredible. Martin Luther in the 15th century, Reformation, 
felt the gates of paradise to open when he understood Paul's letter to the Romans, that we are right with God, not as a human achievement, but it is God's work. It is this man Saul, Paul, it is his letter. And the evangelistic revivals of the 18th century. Here is John Wesley. He gets converted by hearing, he said, my heart was strangely warmed as he heard Martin Luther's introduction to his commentary to Paul's letter to the Romans. And his brother Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, is converted through reading Luther's commentary on Paul's letter to the Galatians. This man is going to be a great evangelist to Europe. That's where most of us are from. The great evangelist will use him. And the first European convert was a woman. Her name was Lydia. And what struck Lydia? Well, you can look later at chapter 16. Oh, I was so overcome by the, charis the charisma of this man. I was struck by his oratory. No way. Luke says, the Lord opened her heart. He's the great evangelist to listen to Paul's message. God will fulfil his purpose. And this man is an antagonist. And God is going to use him unusually as a spirit-empowered gospel messenger. So here is the man. And he's about to meet the man. Look at verse 3. God intercepts him with a blinding light. Verse 3. Verse 4, a voice, the solemn repetition of the name, Saul, Saul. And Saul knew what's happening here is just like what happened to Moses with the burning bush. Moses, Moses, now Saul, Saul. God has come down. Look at the question in verse 4. Why, I want to know the reason, why, and it's personal, do you persecute me? It's you against me. And Saul responds, who? Who are you, Lord? And Jesus responds, look at verse 5, with his earthly name. You see, there is solidarity. If you persecute the Christians, God takes that personally. And I take it personally. Why do you persecute me? And Paul, Saul, now knows that the crucified one lives. And he is in control. Verse 6, go to the city and you'll be told what to do. He struck blind. And God is the sovereign evangelist. Verse 11, he tells Ananias, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man from Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, don't you know I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Lord, I want to tell you what you don't know. You don't know what you're doing here. You don't know about this man. This man is dangerous. And God, having been given a lecture by Ananias about what he doesn't know, verse 15, he says, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, their kings and the people of Israel. This man is going to help in the fulfilment of my purpose to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. His sight was restored. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20. At once, 
He began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. What a shock it must have been to those in the synagogues. Know that this man is coming to persecute and at once he begins preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Now keep your finger there and come with me over to chapter 22. Because in chapter 22, Paul repeats his testimony of what happened on the Damascus Road. What a significant notice is the Jews in Jerusalem who are hearing his testimony stop him where? Look at verse 21. This is where they interrupt him. They listen to Paul up to this point. Then they say, rid the earth of him. Verse 21. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. See, here is the religious audience. And they are steeped in parochialism, ethnic racial prejudice mixed with self-righteousness. They are a nation of older brothers. They resent the free offer of the gospel. They believe the lie. God's not interested in Gentiles. He's only interested in Israel. They are comfortable. They are prejudiced. They are parochial. 1967, I become a Christian. I go along to the church that my father had gone along to, the Presbyterian Church in the eastern suburbs. 1968, Billy Graham was to come. My father led the way and said, we need to support the Billy Graham crusade. We need to put a big banner on the front door of our church to show that we are with Billy Graham. No, they said, we've heard he's a Baptist, isn't he? <laughs> of course they're concerned about that. They had no interest in the lost. They were only religious parochialists. And so they stopped him at this point. Far away to the Gentiles. No, we're not remotely interested in them. We'll come to chapter 26. And here is Paul before the governor Festus, the secular mind. And Festus interrupts him at verse 23. Now, he doesn't worry about the Gentiles. Um, uh, because Paul has already mentioned that he's going to the Gentiles. But in verse 23, Paul says that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. It was at this point that Festus interrupted Paul's defence. He said, you're insane. You're out of your mind, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Notice here, here's the secular mind. Paul is saying Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. There's no engagement in verse 24. It's just a slanging match. You're mad. Now notice that the interrupted point here is not that I'm taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He's already said that. But that Jesus actually rose from the dead. You're mad. You're mad. But the resurrection is the place to be sitting down reading the Bible with a young man, not a Christian. If I become a Christian, do I need to believe that God made the world in six literal days? No, you don't have to believe that. Do I have to believe that Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and nights? No, you don't have to believe that to become a Christian. What you have to believe is that God raised Jesus from the dead and you have to confess Jesus as your Lord and you'll be a Christian. Then we'll work on those other things. But those other things won't make you a Christian. It's the resurrected Jesus and your faith in him. So I am where I want to be when I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus. 
uh, in, I did postgraduate study at university in cosmology. And I, it was a very popular class. There were only four of us in the class. And the, uh, the lecturer invited us to his study. And I remember the week we were studying Pythagoras, the Greek philosopher. And this man said, oh, he said, if I weren't a Christian, I didn't know he had been, he was a Christian. He said, if I weren't a Christian, I'd be a Pythagorean. And I thought, well, why would anybody want to be a Pythagorean? But the person sitting next to me said, why would you be a Christian? She says, why be a Christian? I'm thinking, why would you be a Pythagorean? And he simply said, oh, I'm a Christian because I'm an historian. And I cannot explain the resurrection of Jesus any other way but that he rose. Now back to Pythagoreanism. Just that little brief view into the world. Paul the antagonist becomes Paul the persuader by the direct engagement of the sovereign evangelist God. Notice Luke showing us that the opposition to the gospel at this point is more irrational than the faith it attacks. And life may not be easy for the gospel character. Paul's going to be whipped. He's going to come before several court cases. He's going to be shipwrecked. He's going to have a snake bite him. But the reality is that Paul has been converted and at once he has been commissioned to be a Christian. He has been converted and he joins the spirit-empowered community. Do you recognise your conversion as your commissioning as well? I don't know if you, you get the news down here of that Peter Harvey Canberra. Peter Harvey Canberra. Remember him on Channel 9? <coughs> Peter Harvey in his last interview just before he died. I'm a Christian, he said. I believe in the Lord Jesus. See, up to that point, I didn't know. Was he a private Christian? Someone said, if you're a private Christian, the private will eliminate the Christian or the Christian will eliminate the private. But here's Peter Harvey giving testimony. What about you? A disappointed outcast. Back to chapter 9. A persecuting insider. But let's look at chapter 10. The third man. An ordinary good man. Perhaps he's the most challenging at all because he's most like us. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. His name is Cornelius and he's a centurion, the backbone of the Roman army. Good men. Verse 2, he's devout, he's God-fearing, he's generous. He's associated with the synagogue, but he's not technically a Jew because he hasn't been circumcised. So he's still a Gentile. But his devotion and generosity have come before God and God's going to prepare a messenger to take the gospel to him. Verse 9. Now he's going to prepare Peter. Peter has grown up with a lie. The Gentiles, like Cornelius are technically unclean. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, people like us, are outside the economy of God. God is not interested in them. God is going to save a people for himself, but of course a people from Israel. And Peter would have heard Jesus say that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to the ends of the earth. But Peter would have interpreted that as Jesus saying that repentance and forgiveness of sin is going to be preached in his name to the Jews of all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Because Peter was convinced that God wasn't interested in the nations. Look at Verse 29 of chapter 10, isn't it amazing? The op opportunistic evangelist who never loses an opportunity gets to the house of Cornelius 
And he says, may I ask why you've sent for me? Why I've sent for you? Good grief, here's an opportunity for the gospel. But lies have always been around, haven't they? Right from the very beginning there have been lies. There's always been two voices. There's been the voice of God and there's been the voice of Satan. Jesus said of the devil, he's a liar and a murderer from the very beginning. Always two voices. And yet Peter somehow had listened to this voice that God is not interested in the non-Jew. Lies. A deputy prime minister believes a lie that happiness can be found outside of his family. That it's possible to be one thing in private and another thing in public. It's a lie. The tragedy of a well-respected cricket captain who believes the lie that the end justifies the means. Let's win at all costs. It's a lie. And Peter believes the lie. Oh, you want to become a Christian, but you're not Jewish. Go away. Oh, no, God's not interested in you if you're uncircumcised. You have to earn the right and there's no right for you. So God is going to deal with this man who believes the lie. Look at verse 9. He gives him a vision. A blanket comes down from heaven of food. In that, in that blanket there is clean and unclean meat. And the voice says to Peter, verse 13, kill it and eat it. Surely not, Lord, verse 14. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice says in verse 15, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. You see, Peter, this is what you need to learn, that the old distinction between clean and unclean food no longer apply under the new covenant. And what is true of food is true of people. There's no such thing as clean and unclean meat. And there is no such thing as clean and unclean people. And Peter, the messenger, learns his lesson and he comes to the home of Cornelius. And Cornelius tells Peter all about why he is sent for him. And just have a look there in verse 34. Peter says, at that point, then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism. He is not a discriminating God. And so he begins to tell him about Jesus. Verse 36, God sent Jesus. And this Jesus was a good man. Now we know already Cornelius was a good man. So I'm telling a good man about another good man. And this good man, Jesus, went about doing good. God was with him and he was healing people from the power of the devil. And then he says in verse 39, have a look at it. We witnessed his goodness. But the Jews, my people, the Jews, my people, his own people, Peter's people, killed him by hanging him on the tree. And Cornelius knew enough of the law to know that anyone who was hung on a tree was cursed. And this good man was now under the curse of God, yet, Peter says, God was with him. He did good. He was on the tree, not because of any crime that has been mentioned here. His death was undeserved. Now, of course, Luke is summarising uh, what Peter says. But he died for others, like he said to the Ethiopian eunuch. And have a look at verse 40. This is God's verdict. This is what the people did to him. But God raised him from the dead on the third day. 
and caused him to be seen. God set his seal of approval. We are witnesses of this, verse 41. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We ate with him. He was no ghost. He'd been bodily raised. He paid no concession to death. God raised him up. He commanded us, verse 42, to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one whom God appointed the judge of the living and the dead. And all will stand before him. But verse 43, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Forgiveness is found through him, through believing in him. He is the one who lived. He is the one who died. He is the one who rose again. And the only way to prepare for judgment before him is to put your faith and trust in him. And if there was still any lingering doubt in Peter that somehow God's purpose was with the Gentiles, that God was not interested in non-Jews, look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Why, Peter hadn't even yet given the appeal. They hadn't started to play just as I am. But God takes it right out of his hands. He pours out the Holy Spirit on believing Gentiles, much to the astonishment of the men who were with Peter, that God had included the Gentiles, the uncircumcised in his church, and now the uncircumcised are part of the new Israel. Can anyone, verse 7 to 47, keep these people from being baptised with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ, Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. What a remarkable thing. And Peter reports to the brethren in Jerusalem and see what they say, verse 18 of chapter 11. When they heard Peter's report, they had no further objections, these Jewish Christian brethren. And they praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. The first century lie is answered by the experience of Cornelius. The first century lie that God has limited interest is answered by the experience of Cornelius. Now, dear brothers and sisters, I doubt that there is anybody here today who battles with that first century lie. We're all Cornelius here. We are the Gentiles who, by the grace of God, have come to believe in Jesus Christ. We are the new Israel, the church of God. It's no surprise to us. We don't believe that first century lie. But there is incredible pressure on us to believe the widespread 21st century lie, the lie which has become the dogma of the age in Australia. And those who in our society insist on tolerance are most intolerant when it comes to dealing with people who believe, who do not believe this lie. But like all lies from the very beginning, it is a destructive lie. But this lie, which is widely believed in Australia, is eternally destructive. Oh no, we don't believe the first century lie. Do you believe the 21st century lie? Here it is. The Australian the most august national newspaper, 
a social commentator in the Australian is a man by the name of Bernard Salt. He is their demographer, their sociologist. I like his writing. Recently, he wrote about the value of religious faith. And he reduced all religious belief systems to one core thesis. Here it is, quote, be good in this life and you shall earn eternal life, end quote. That is what it is all about. All religion, be good now and you will earn eternity then. The scales will be in your balance. Now, in Sydney, we have a man by the name of Alan Jones. You may have heard of him. He speaks on Sydney Radio Morning Breakfast and about 20% of the radio audience in the morning in Sydney listen to him. So one in five, that's a big audience. And Alan Jones always says, if anybody ever asks, Alan, are you a Christian? He always answers the same way. If anybody ever asks me, am I a Christian? I answer in the same way, I'm trying. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? I'm trying. Oh, dear Alan, uh, do you, why Easter? Why Jesus, if it's just a matter of trying? Like that lady in the B&B said to my wife and I just before Easter last year, oh, I'm just trying to be a good person. Oh, yeah. Why do you think Easter happened? If it's just a matter of trying to be a good person, why Jesus? Why his life? Why his death? Why his resurrection? Why? But you see, this 21st century lie is the lie that all you have to be is good and I guess you could say that Cornelius is the patron saint of all such good. He was a good man. So surely Cornelius, generous, kind, a good man. Oh, he's got eternal life to come. Perform now. Reward then. Religion is irrelevant as long as it makes people good. These missionaries, aren't they wicked people? Aren't they going out to disturb people who are basically good even though they don't believe in our God, they believe in their own God, so why disturb them? Because they're basically good. Don't disrupt their own belief systems. Don't talk about repentance. Don't talk about redemption. Don't talk about Jesus. It's actually just a matter of being good. And that's what I hate about Acts chapter 10. <laughs> the Australian will hate Acts chapter 10 because he's a good man. He's a religious man. He is a prayerful man. He is a devout man. He is a generous man. Leave him alone. He's just being good. He'll be all right. But God does not leave him alone. In fact, his lifestyle comes before God and has his approval. But he is not right with God. He needs the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 36. Telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. Verse 42, this Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. And as good as he is, Cornelius does not have that peace. He's a good man, but he's an unforgiven man. He's a good man, but he is not ready to stand before Jesus Christ in judgment. He needs to hear about Jesus. Because Jesus alone lived the perfect life. He cursed and died on the cross. He was raised and only through belief in him do I know that my transgressions have been forgiven. There is no other name. That is what Peter said. And the best of us and the worst of us all need that. But dear friends, the world hates chapter 10. 
because the world hates this gospel. And the two reasons the world hates the gospel is that the gospel is so exclusive. There is only one way. All religions are not the same. There is only one judge of God's appointment. There is only one name by which we can be forgiven. And the world hates that. And my friend from England said on one occasion, they were celebrating an enormous centenary or more centenary of his charity in the United Kingdom. And a prominent member of the royal family came, not Her Majesty the Queen, but someone else. And as he's being presented, this prominent member of the royal family, and this is a charity which promotes the reading of God's word so that people can be saved. And this prominent member of the royal family said, do you have Buddhists working in your organisation? And my friend said, may I answer, sir? Of course. I doubt that I would find any Buddhists who proclaim the uniqueness of the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this member of the royal family who's been listening to all the nonsense of the English church all through the life said, oh, yes, but they believe basically the same as us, don't they? No, they don't. And the world hates it because it is so exclusive. But there's another reason why our fellow Australians hate the gospel, because it is so humbling. I make no contribution. Cornelius didn't hold on to his good works as though that qualified him for righteousness. He was not self-righteous. Good works were not by salvation, uh, his salvation. Peter came to tell him the message, not that he'll be all right because he's good, but he needed a saviour. He needed the grace of God as much as we do and as much as Saul did in the previous chapter. What the world hates. The world hates it because it's exclusive. The world hates it because it's humbling. And what Alan didn't say is that one of the great enemies of the Christian gospel is the church itself. Because historically, what the world ends up hating, the church will end up hating. And so we have religious leaders who end up hating the gospel. I was sitting down with Scott Morrison, the federal treasurer. We were in a heads of denominations meeting. He said, you know, he said, I hear lots of Christian leaders sprouting how it's all about love. And same-sex attraction doesn't matter because it's all about love. And I see the rainbow flag flying from church buildings, but I never see the rainbow flag flying from mosques. That is true. Because the church ends up hating that which... The world hates. And unless we have a firm anchor in the word of God, that's what happens. Lies are destructive. The first lie in the very beginning, if you eat of it, you'll die. No, God doesn't know what he's talking about. You will not die. The first century lie, or God plays favourites. Don't worry about the Gentiles. God's not interested in them. The 21st century lie, just be good. And hope that the balance is in your favour. But God went to a great deal of effort to send his son. To see his pristinely pure life. To see him die on that cross. To see him raised again to be the judge. And do you think that he will allow you to so disregard his son. As you clothe yourself in your own puny goodness. A disappointed outcast a persecuting insider, an ordinary good man. 3,000, 5,000. Luke says, let me tell you about three. 
an intersection laid down in eternity. Go to the Gaza Road leading south, the Damascus Road. Go to the house of the unclean Gentile. Do you understand what you're reading? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? May I ask why you sent for me? God is the evangelist. He is glorifying himself as he's saving a people of his own who hear and believe the gospel, which is being carried to the ends of the earth by a spirit empowered, not just people who are good with a gab, but people who are empowered by the spirit to break through their shyness and to share their testimony. Morning, Lord. What are you up to today? May I be a part of it? Let's pray. Uh, thank you for all 66 books of the Bible. But today, our special thanks to you, our Father, for breathing this word out through Luke, the doctor, the historian, that we may have certainty. Uh, thank you, Heavenly Father, that this is a great tonic in the realm of the Spirit for us to be reminded of your purpose as we're tempted to be silent and to be afraid and to cringe before the forces of darkness. We know that you are the same God whose purpose remains and whose word is unstoppable. Fill us, we ask, with your Holy Spirit, our Heavenly Father, that we might not be afraid and that we might not be silent. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.